0: in non-essentials liberty in all things charity now here's dean
1: well welcome friends it's great to have you back on this edition of the epcs in all things a podcast that is for the EPC. And we hope, of course, at some point this might uh, spread beyond that and become a benefit to the church at large. But initially, we want to focus on um, the ruling elders, teaching elders, and members of our congregations who would be encouraged by learning more about the EPC and some of the things that we have to offer to help them in their walk with the Savior. And I'm excited about today's aspect of the podcast because we have in our studio with us Zach Hopkins. And Zach is a pastor in the EPC Teaching Elder. but He's also the chair of our permanent committee on theology, and he's also very involved in leadership of what is called the Westminster Society. And I'm going to let him unpack a little bit more about what some of those things mean and how they can be a blessing to you and your congregation. But what I'd like to do is um, begin our conversation uh, with prayer, and, uh, and then I'm going to welcome Zach to our studio. So here we go. Lord, thank you so much for this time that I could spend together with my brother and that the gift that he is to me could be shared with the larger church. And I pray that you would bless our conversation and you would be pleased with all that we say and do. To your glory, honor, and praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, Zach, welcome. Welcome to uh, EPC World Headquarters, the vast empire that it is. I enjoy
2: coming down to Orlando. They usually tease me if I'm going to see Mickey when I come, but I tell them I see the inside of a conference room, and that's about it.
1: Isn't that, isn't that the case? But right? it's a wonderful place to visit a conference room with great hospitality. I, so. s- I see a hotel. I walk across the street. I see a conference room. I go back to my hotel, and that's about it. Not as impressive as it might seem, but yeah. it's wonderful to be here. There are big windows in the conference room, beautiful, and there is sunshine outside. All right, good deal. Well, you are here uh, at the EPC for the Theology Committee, and a lot of people maybe don't know. Well, maybe we should start here. Could you explain to our listeners the difference between a permanent committee and a standing committee? I'm not sure that people always even know, because do we have two theology committees? I mean, what's the difference? Sure.
2: So the difference between a standing committee and a permanent committee is that a standing committee is only constituted during the Meeting of the General Assembly. So, for that one week in June, when the General Assembly is gathered, there are items that commissioners that are assigned to that standing committee will discuss and consider and vote on. But once the GA adjourns, the standing committee is no longer an active thing. So, it's
1: typically they receive business that comes from a permanent theology committee and you chair that how how that's a the general assembly nominating committee nominates people to be on that you said yes Uh, you may be wondering why you said yes but you said yes i said yes four years
2: ago so i've done uh, one rotation of three years and uh, serving another rotation and the permanent committees serve to uh, accomplish the will of the assembly in the intervening time between the meetings of the general assembly so that the work of the church continues as the will of the work of the church through its committees that the GA has nominated and elected and approved. So it's still the work of the General Assembly through its permanent committees.
1: Excellent. So the General Assembly this last year actually sent something to this permanent committee for them to wrestle with and come back to them. Could you explain that item of business that you've been wrestling with with your team over the last couple days?
2: Sure. So a lot of people have curiosities about the Permanent Committee on Theology, and I admit that I used to have those same curiosities as well. I thought, wow, you know, in the intervening time, we get to do all sorts of things theological. But really, the Permanent Committee on Theology does whatever the General Assembly asks, but only what the General Assembly asks. So that means that our responsibility is to receive and study the things that the meeting of the GA hands to us, and only the things that it hands to us are the topics that we get to take up. So I like to be really clear on what exactly is our task. And if things are outside the purview of that task, it's not our responsibility. At and this time. I will
1: just say, as the stated clerk, having sat in on two of your meetings now, you're really good at that. I think you're really good at staying on task and keeping the focus as narrow as the scope of what the GA has asked that team to do. And I think that's the best use of everybody's time. Yeah. So there is a particular thing this year that the Permanent Committee on Theology was asked to do, and uh, your team has just met for the last couple of days here to do that. So could you unpack what that thing is? Sure. So if somebody is looking back
2: in minutes, it's recommendation 4131 from the General Assembly, which asked the Permanent Committee on Theology to study and explore the matter of virtual communion and to consider that through the lens of our constitution and practice so we were being asked to evaluate the constitutionality of what has become a new thing in so many of our lives right. to to kind of take the time to slow down and say let's think this through a bit more and let's consider the implications of all of this and run it through authority of the scriptures, the authority of our constitution and confessions, and say, what does this look like in the EPC, or what should this, or shouldn't this look like, and how can we embrace and celebrate the sacraments in a unified way of understanding and, and have it draw us together, rather than be something that would stir up controversy, which it does not need to do.
1: So I'm going to just replay, re-roll the tape for one second, because there's something that you and I both take for granted that maybe our listeners don't always necessarily appreciate, and that is to say what is our constitution? When you, when you say that, there are some people who may not understand all that that includes. So could you just explain what is the constitution of the EPC include?
2: Sure. So when we talk about the constitution, we talk about it in two volumes, first of all. Volume one is our book of order. So that's the book of government, the book of discipline, and the book of worship and its associated forms and rules for assembly operation. Volume two is our confession of faith. And by that, we mean our secondary subordinate standards of the Westminster Confession of Faith and its associated larger and shorter catechisms. So the Constitution Volume 1, we could call maybe our polity. Constitution Volume 2, our doctrine, if that's
1: a fair summary to say. So I know you have a lot of thoughts on this, so you have to keep them concise. But what do you think is the value, Zach, in having one confession as a church? Because uh, there are other traditions that have multiple confessions perhaps. And I've had people come back to me from time to time to say, well, why don't we include the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed and these kind of things? Um, not that other historical documents aren't uh, important and even helpful, but as a confessional church, to choose one confession, the Westminster Standards, why is that a, how does that form and shape us and how is that valuable as a people? What a great topic. I mean, there's so many things that we could say. That's why I said you're going to have to be brief because I know I just gave you a great question. Because, that's loaded from you know, it
2: would be worthwhile to distinguish the difference between a creed and a confession. But just to say.
1: Could you do that real briefly?
2: Well, the, the creed is the, is the articulation of the church across any distinctions, right? So as the Apostles' Creed, it is the confession of apostolic doctrine that the true church holds in every expression. Creed's are not intended to say everything about everything. They're intended to say very clearly what the Catholic Church believes about who God is.
1: By Catholic, you mean? The
2: universality,
1: the Catholicity of the Church, the way the Apostles' Creed uses it. So the, um, oh gosh, you know, the ancient Church in Northern Africa, Apostles' Creed. Right. The Presbyterian Church in Scotland, Apostles' Creed. Presbyterian Church, EPC, Apostles' Creed. Right. So that cuts across time and space and denominations and traditions. There's a universality to that true church. Okay. A confession is how distinguished then? A confession uh,
2: more narrowly distinguishes the, the interpretation or the summary of the Bible's teachings on all the, the major doctrines of the Bible. And so a church set apart a confession of faith to be an articulation both positively about what we believe the Bible to teach about very important subjects, and it also, by affirming these things, by necessary consequence, draws some parameters or boundaries to say, as we believe this, we are likewise saying we do not believe other things.
1: So we're not Lutheran Correct. or we're not Methodist. We Correct. define our tradition theologically in the, Ref- in the Reformed faith. We define it this way. Right. And we hold that our, our
2: unity as a church is fundamentally a unity in the truth. What is the truth? The truth is summarized in the Bible's teachings according to our standards, where we say, this is what we believe the Bible teaches.
1: So uh, this is a little bit of a curveball, but I think you can hit this one over the fence, so I'm not, I'm not too worried. There are other Reformed confessions, right? Uh, Second Helvetic, maybe Heidelberg, but we've chosen a particular Reformed confession that is ours. What is the value of our choosing the Westminster standards over and against maybe one of the other Reformed confessions? Well, I think we can draw the straightest historical line of lineage and progression
2: to the American Presbyterian tradition, the Anglo-Scottish Westminsterian tradition, of the Westminster Confession, it's contrary to that of the uh, the continental tradition with the Dutch Confessions of Faith, and that's not to speak against the value of those, I use them with great benefit all the time, Heidelberg Catechism especially, but um, by distinguishing that we have a Confession of Faith which is with its associated catechisms, we're saying this is the clear summary of the doctrine that we believe the Bible teaches. And I think
1: that enables us to do something that, well, for those of us who came out of a previous denominational background didn't have available, that is to say there is one standard by which we can hold one another doctrinally accountable. Correct. And that is a a gift to the church, isn't it?
2: Right, because... By way of a confession, it is the vehicle through which our unity is maintained when I look you in the eye and know that you believe what I believe. And this solidifies our unity because we're not constantly looking at each other with suspicion to assume that we're on different pages because we have avowed by public vow that this is the system of doctrine that we hold together. And when I when I think about subscription, I like to advance this notion of a sincere subscription or as uh, you know older theologians might say an ex animo subscription which means from the heart so when i say that this is the doctrine that i believe it's not just the doctrine that i believe the epc believes but rather that this is the doctrine of my own heart and the confession of my own faith sufficiently that i not only believe it but I give myself in ministry to advance
1: its teachings with passion. So I know, because I've heard you speak on this before, but could you just elaborate briefly? Um, We talk a lot in the EPC about having a culture of trust. And you tie that trust directly to that confessional standard. Could you elaborate on that, please?
2: Sure. So I'd like to think about the fact that we trust one another is not, Fundamentally tied to the mechanisms of denominational life and office of top-down authority by saying, "Trust the institution, trust the mechanisms, trust
1: the various processes." No, the trust, even trust the person. Sure, because I'm I'm going to be a fallible person, and maybe I'm not worthy of that trust. Right. I mean, we are Calvinists after all. That's right. So the trust
2: is that our unity is fundamentally that unity in the truth where the confession of faith expresses what we hold together. And so our unity is a theological unity in the truth so that we begin at the same place together and we, we understand the kingdom of God to be advancing by the same means. We're not working against each other. We're working
1: together in common confession of what we believe the Bible teaches. So this is one of the reasons why you're so passionate as well as a number of others in helping to form a kind of an ad hoc group within the denomination that uh, holds up high the value of the confession called the Westminster Society. Uh, Could you just give us a little bit of background in the Westminster Society and what that group aspires to do, what they have done, what they hope to do, and how people might be able to connect or be involved? Sure. So it traces back to the... Sacramento General Assembly when we had our first kind of official. Okay, thing. I remember the moderator. the moderator at that General right. Assembly right. is a real knucklehead. <laughs> I don't know what the assembly was thinking at that point. So in in Sacramento we held our our first
2: meeting, uh, and at that time we said what we want to do is we had a, a small group of friends, and we said you know wouldn't it be great if uh, at the GA for all the wonderful opportunities that already exist for meeting and gathering and having information sharing and networking wouldn't it be great if there was a group that was really focused on continuing our discussions and framing our pastoral practices around the application of the confessions to life and ministry. So we wanted to really focus our conversations around the standards and the way it shapes our life and our doctrine and our piety and our practice as elders in the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And we've seen a wonderful response from people to say, that's really beneficial and really enjoy that. And Personally for me, the greatest benefit is not necessarily the teaching elders joining in on that, though I love that, very much so, but the wonderful benefit from ruling elders saying, this is great, and and we love continuing to learn these things and and grow in our faith and our application. So the Westminster Society is not a formal court or agency of the church. It's just an informal networking group that after a couple of years and gaining a little bit of esteem, it's given us the opportunity, and and Jerry's been a big help with this, to give us a place in the the leadership time, the Leadership Institute, a specific track for theology where we've had four hours to give presentations and have speakers and uh, have people have some roundtable discussions and questions and answers so that we can continually make advancements and what it means when we say that we sincerely receive and adopt the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms and its application for our life and ministry.
1: So Zach is referring to Jerry Iamuri, who's our assistant stated clerk and our chief governance officer. And Jerry's going to be my guest in one of the upcoming, uh, very soon to be future podcasts for In All Things. And so we'll hear more from Jerry about his role and what he does and how he performs those kind of functions. But as Zach is indicating, uh, he's in charge of Leadership Institute at our General Assemblies, in which Zach has mentioned they have a part. So in closing, Zach, any work. Words uh, for our listeners on why you love the EPC, your hopes and dreams, your value, encouragement for them um, as we close out. Maybe if I just
2: tie tie in together the reality of my passions and interests relative to the Westminster Society and the EPC, I'd like to really advance this notion of confessional churchmanship and warm-hearted confessional piety, of giving ourselves to the church and In my desire to do that, I found a wonderful home in the EPC where there's been a very loving embrace. I see the EPC as a wonderful work of the Lord, kind of uniquely our address in the neighborhood of American Presbyterianism is a a wonderful place to be. I've gained so many friends and relationships in that context. I'm very grateful to be a part of it, grateful for those relationships and the wisdom that I've been able to gain from those who were willing to invest time and attention in me and just... Let me ask them questions and have conversations and walk together in the Lord as we consider that we are all about the kingdom work together. And I'm grateful for the EPC and the fact that it's given me the opportunities to serve to whatever degree is is helpful, advance various causes. So I'm thankful for my local church that lets me give time both to my Presbytery, Rivers and Lakes Presbytery, who are serving in various capacities, and even here at the GA office um, serving in permanent committees and opportunities like that. I'm just very thankful that a denomination like the EPC would allow me, a relatively young teaching elder, to be a part of the life and ministry of our church and walk together with everyone else in our shared mission for the kingdom of God.
1: And your church, just as a reminder, could you give us the name of your church? And if uh, our listeners wanted to go online to you know, listen to some of your messages, is that possible?
2: Sure. So we are Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church. A steadfast, consistent witness to the gospel since 1837 in Lower Rock Island County, one of the oldest churches in the county. And uh, the Saints of Edgington are so
1: dear to me. I love to see that in your eyes. I've I've been there just about 10 years. You are a great example, Zach, of a warm-hearted churchman, and you do that well. And uh, I appreciate you. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today and share your heart. And for those who are interested, I encourage you to go to the Edgington website and kind of explore there a little bit and to, to look for uh, information about the Westminster Society and ways in which you can grow. I've, I've yet to see any of our particularly uh, ruling elders who really engage in a deeper, deeper exploration of our reformed faith i've rarely seen anyone come away who wasn't encouraged edified strengthened in their faith and walk with the savior in that process so for all you do in that regard zach thank you my pleasure thank you so let me close in with this reminder as we always do my friends to keep our eyes focused on the one who has made all of this possible the son is the image of the invisible god the firstborn over all creation for in him all things were created things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible thrones and powers and rulers and authorities all things have been created through him and for him for he is before all things and in him all things hold together for he is the head of the body the church until the next time my friends peace be with you
0: Thank you again for joining us. On behalf of Dean and the entire team, we hope you will join us for our next episode of In All Things. For more information about the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, including a directory of local churches, online resources, and much more, visit our website at www.epc.org. I'm Rachel Joseph. I pray you have an overwhelming sense of God's presence in all things today.